It's a wonderful gift to worship with all of you this morning. Your voices are just so encouraging to me in the room. As we get started this morning, hold your Bible up in the air if you have a copy of God's Word. Digital copies are okay too. It's all good. But hold that there for a moment. What a gift that we can even do this freely. But here we are this morning. You've heard a lot. Keep it up. Keep it up. You're, you're good. Uh, we've heard a lot of scripture this morning, haven't we already? And, and, and the Bible proclaims that this book has all that we need for life and for godliness. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's able to pierce your heart. It's able to change your life. The grass withers. The flowers fade What you get your hands on, this side of heaven will fade away. This will never return void. It will never return empty. And it is one continuous story about a relationship between God and man, breathed out by God for man, and we have the opportunity to open it together this morning. That's a beautiful thing. With that in mind, go ahead and open your Bible to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And as we get into this today, we're, we're continuing through the prologue of John. And I hope that you have been just marveling at these words in this first section of the Gospel of John. Today is an invitation for you to uh, come in and relish with me the glorious truth that has put us in Christ. The glorious truth that God became a man. I have been soaking in these 18 verses the last three weeks and it has been changing my life. It's been moving me to worship. It's been giving me a greater desire for God and I pray that it would do the same in all of our lives. It's it's merely whetting my appetite for the glory of Christ that will be revealed through this entire gospel. And so let's view it together today. But We said that, you know, the first section of John, verses 1 through 5, are really the ascent of the prologue, and we would dealt with who is Jesus from an eternal point of view. He was God in the beginning with God, and he was God. And then the the middle section had us deal with the question, what will you do with Jesus? And we saw that some rejected him. His own people rejected him, the Lord of creation in his creation, the saddest verse in maybe all of the Bible. And yet, to those who did receive him and who believed in his name, Jesus gave the right to be a child of God, the peak of the prologue. And now on the descent, we see John talking about who is Jesus, but from an incarnational point of view. Today we'll be um, approached with the incarnation, confronted, but also we will behold the radiance of the glory of Christ. And as we get started, I, I couldn't help but get past all of those Old Testament passages that were read at the beginning of the gathering. Hopefully you, you could see the instances of the glory of God that have been on display since the beginning of time in that Exodus passage that was written, uh, read and the Isaiah passage. And what you should have noticed is that the glory of God is no joke. The glory of God is the outshining of the goodness and character of God. So the Hebrew word is kabod, uh, the, the Greek word in the New Testament is doxa, it's where we get our word doxology, so we're worshiping God as glory is shining, we are giving him glory, but it's first translated, glory is first translated as the weight, strength, power, and ability of God. The glory of God is, is a weighty subject, it's a weighty substance, And secondly, translated the honor and majesty and dignity and splendor that is due to Yahweh. And Yahweh's glory, it perfectly fits all of those 
definitions and so much more than our finite minds can wrap our brains around and our little language can do to describe all that God is. But what you should have noticed from the passages read at the beginning of the gathering is that to even see the glory of God in our sinful human state is to be incinerated in an instant. That's what God said to Moses. No one can see God and live. To even get a glimpse of the glory of God is to fall on the ground, on your face, and worship the Almighty God. So Moses got a glimpse of God's glory as God shielded him in his grace, and Moses fell down to the ground and worshiped. To even get a glimpse of the glory of God in the heavenly places is to be immediately embarrassed of your sinfulness and made small due to your unworthiness compared to his worthiness. That's what happened to Isaiah when he said, woe is me, and all of his sin came flooding forth. The glory of God does make the mountain shake. It does make a forest burst into flames. It does cause water to boil. It does break the cedars. It does cause the deers to give birth, as it says in Psalm 27. God's glory is blazing hot. It is incomprehensibly heavy and weighty. weighty. It, it would be like you trying to take a drink out of Niagara Falls to comprehend the glory of God. The glory of God is blinding bright, and it is majestic and awe-inspiringly beautiful because it's the outshining and manifestation of everything good about God. It casts a holy fear on all who know him and an eternal dread on all who do not know him. And yet in an act of divine grace and unrelenting love, all of that glory has been made known to humans in the person of Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. So the big idea this morning that I'm so excited to talk with you about is this, beholding Jesus in the flesh prepares us for the eternal weight of glory in heaven. Beholding Jesus in the flesh, the God became flesh, prepares us for the eternal weight of glory in heaven. Look with me, if you will, to John chapter 1, starting in verse 14, and hear the word of the Lord once again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray together this morning. Father, just in desperate need of you today, desperate need of your, your spirit to illuminate to our hearts, the importance of the incarnation, the importance of the glory of God showing up in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you take what feels a bit dense and make it light to our minds and our hearts today? Spirit, would you go before me and would you, would you open ears and hearts and minds to, to see and to believe and to desire more and would it move us as a people, as a collective gathered body 
this morning, would, would the glory of Christ move us to a deeper worship of Jesus? Would we love you more with our heart, soul, mind, and strength after this sermon because of your spirit illuminating, illuminating to our hearts a desperate need for you? In your mighty name we pray, amen. Point number one this morning is this. Behold, the word became flesh. Behold, the word became flesh. Look at verse 14. And the word, capital W, became flesh and dwelt among us. So as John begins this descent of his prologue, he takes us back to where he started. He says, the word. And you, gotta need, you need to ask, what word? And it's a capital W. We know that it's more, more of a what. It's, it's actually a who that John's referring to, and he takes us back to verse 1 that said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This was no ordinary word. This was no ordinary logos. It was not some ethereal thing that the Stoics and the Arians and the philosophers of the day would think about. This was the person of Jesus Christ. John is describing the logos as the eternal divine son of God who always existed in perfect harmony within the triune nature of our one God who exists as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, And Jesus is the self-disclosure of God himself. So we also see in verse 3 that Jesus is the Lord of all creation. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus is the rightful king and Lord of everything breathing, everything moving. That includes your life. Jesus has to be Lord of your life because you are breathing and here because of Jesus who created All things. Everything was created through Jesus, for Jesus, answers to Jesus, returns to Jesus, gives glory to Jesus because he is over it all. And we've seen that the word is life and light to a dead and dark world. Last week we saw that that the word that became flesh was the true light that came into the world and it reveals our spiritual deadness and it reveals that we walk in darkness apart from the true light who can give us light and who can give us life. That's why week one we said the eternal word is Jesus who is the one true God. You gotta believe that because no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. Now the word, wouldn't you say, is incomprehensibly superior to you and to me. So he deserves our worship and he deserves our allegiance And he deserves his throne in heaven over this world and over this universe. And yet in the most startling and humbling and condescending way that we could ever fathom, John writes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Crazy. Royalty became peasantry. The exalted became lowly. The creator came to walk in our messed up and broken creation. God became a man. And of course, this is John's reference to the incarnation. But John leaves out some details. He doesn't tell us about the census by Caesar. John doesn't tell us about the journey to Bethlehem or about the lowly stable due to no room in the little town of Bethlehem. He doesn't tell us about 
the angels showing up to the shepherds in a field nearby. He doesn't tell us anything about a baby being wrapped in swaddling cloths because John is interested in one thing, really. He's interested in you hearing, believing, and forever relishing that the all-powerful God of creation became like you and me. And that truth should blow your mind again and again and again and again. I know it was just Christmas. And I know we just thought a lot, a little bit. We put our nativity sets out and we see this little baby in a manger. But have you, have you pondered the thought of God who was in the beginning becoming man like you and me? When it doesn't blow our minds, we've either neglected to meditate on and remind ourselves of this necessary doctrine that puts us in Christ Jesus or We're not children of God at all, and we could be counted among those who rejected Jesus. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So the incarnation of Christ, the word became flesh. It is a cornerstone of the Christian faith. This spiritual word, incarnation, it comes from the Latin, and it means the act of becoming flesh. So in the middle of it, you have the word carne, which is where we get our word carnivore, Where we get meat or flesh, more eloquently said, it is God with flesh. And what's important for you to see in verse 14 is that it's, John writes that the word became flesh. He doesn't say that he transformed a flesh. John doesn't say that he took over a flesh or that he traded deity for flesh or that he was an illusion of the flesh. And all of those distinctions are important because Around the time John was writing, and for hundreds of years after John wrote these things, many have tried to come up with a solution for how did this Jesus get here. And all of those examples that I just read to you are examples of how heresies have come into the world and how religions have started and how we have fallen off of the path of God becoming flesh. It's so important to understand that the word became flesh and there's important implications about this for our faith. It's what it means to be Christian, that the God of glory and the God of, of, of our universe became a man. Because for Jesus, the eternal Lord, to become Jesus in human form, he would need to be conceived in a mother's womb. He would need to be birthed like any baby is born this side of heaven. Think about that. The Lord who created everything, the Lord, the God who created a woman and the ability to conceive a child and give birth to a child, that Lord was gonna go through that process for you. The eternal Lord needed to be nursed, needed to be clothed, needed to be swaddled to sleep. The God of glory needed to grow through the toddler stage and the adolescent stage and the awkward teenager phase. You know what I'm talking about. He had to learn to walk and to run, to not touch the hot stone or stove or whatever they cooked on. He had to learn to write and to read. The God of glory who created all things had to learn to write and read in our world. He became flesh and dwelt among us. He cried at night in need of his mom or dad. He fell. God fell and scraped his knees on the dirt. Get this, God who became man, he was tempted to look where he shouldn't look. Tempted with sexual immorality. Tempted to to steal glory for himself in pride rather than give glory 
to the God who is in heaven. God became flesh means that he was tempted to get anxious and try to suppress it with something other than prayer and fasting. God became flesh means he was tempted to give up in the hardest moments of suffering in his life. And yet the difference between Jesus the human and me the human, or you the human, is that Jesus never gave in to temptation because Jesus was perfect. And that's because he was 100% man and 100% God. And it was that way when he came as a baby and it's still that way today as he is on his throne in the heavenly places. That right there is why the virgin birth matters so much. We, we sang about it in that last song today. The virgin birth matters. We learned in verse 13 that you can't be born of God. No one can be saved. No one can be given the right to be a child of God through means of the flesh, John said, through natural ways, through, through natural blood, or through the will of man. You need to be born of God. So Jesus was the only human in all of history to not have an earthly biological father because from the womb he was born of God, which made him perfect, which set him apart, which made him God became flesh. Just as we have one God who exists in three distinct natures, Jesus has two distinct natures. It's another thing to ponder, another thing to get your mind wrapped around. I, I think John Owen says it really well. I was reading him this week. He says this, he is God and man in one person. In Jesus are two distinct natures, the one eternal, infinite form and essence of God. The other having a beginning in time, finite, limited, confined to a certain place, which is our nature. Jesus is God and man. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And if you can just wrap your brain around that thought another time, right now, ponder it a little deeper than you have before, if you can just wrap your brain around the fact that God became flesh, you would come to see that there is nothing in this life that Jesus cannot help you with. For who has a God that would become like him? Who has a God that would stoop so low that he would come to endure what man endures? Isaiah 53 says that he is acquainted with all of our grief. So you can take all of your grief to Jesus today. Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus. So you can take all of your weeping, all of your pain from lost loved ones to Jesus because he knows exactly what it's like. He sweated drops of blood wishing his father would change his course in life. So too, you can plead with God in your distress knowing that Jesus felt those same exact feelings. He was tempted by Satan himself in Matthew chapter 4 three times. And yet every time Jesus fought off Satan in that temptation by quoting the word of God that is sharper than a two-edged sword. If Jesus needed to quote God's word to fight off temptation, how could we get by any day without it? And yet we have an example to follow that in the midst of temptation, when God's word is hidden in our hearts, we will not sin against our good and glorious Father. Jesus never did. 
Hebrews chapter 4 says it this way. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. So Jesus, he passed through the heavens. That's what separates our God from any other God of any other religion. Because every other religion is trying to get to their deity. They're trying to get from, he- from earth to heaven. But your God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he came from heaven to earth for you. And look what it says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. And not only can he sympathize with us in the hardships and trials of this broken and dark world, Jesus can also sympathize with us in death because Jesus knew what it was like to be despised and mocked. And Jesus knew what it was like to be rejected by others. And Jesus knew what it was like to feel brutal, unrelenting pain. You can take your pain to Jesus today because he feels it. Jesus knew what it was like to struggle to breathe. And Jesus knows what it is like to breathe your last. But Jesus knows what it's like to experience life beyond the grave because he walked out of his grave in bodily human form on the third day to be the firstborn from the dead and the only way to salvation for all who will believe. And that's what John wants us confronted with. That, that, that we would see and, and know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name forevermore. Jesus dwelling among us is proof that you have all you need in Christ alone. And it's proof that there's no love like the love of God who would condescend to us rather than leave us for dead as we try to get to him. Brings us to to the second point this morning, and it's this. Behold grace and truth. Behold grace and truth. So we've made it through about four words of the text. Let's keep going. (laughs) And And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Just notice the capital S in son and the capital F in father. We see two individuals. The glory of God has come through the Son, and the Son is from the Father. Another example of our triune God whom we worship. But at the beginning of the gathering, you heard Exodus 33, where Moses said, Show me your glory, and God graciously shielded him and gave him a glimpse of his glory. Now, as Exodus continues, when you get to like chapter 21, 23, all the way through 40, God tells Moses to build a tabernacle in the wilderness, and it is an ornate building. Many, many details, many specific details. This is exactly how I want you to build this tabernacle. Kind of like Noahic faith in the sense that Noah built an ark in the middle of a drought, and now here's Moses in the middle of a wilderness building this giant building. Look in Exodus 40, verse 34. So Moses finished the work. What faith? What obedience, may it be said of us. Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The weight, the majesty, the goodness of God, everything good about God filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, in all the scriptures that you've heard today, you've seen a longing for the glory of God by man, the gracious glimpses and vehicles that God graciously allowed for sinners to catch a glimpse 
of the glory of God on earth. You've seen the glory of God revealing man's sinfulness, and now we see the glory of God showing up in a building that only a priest could enter into the Holy of Holies one time per year, and if anything was off about that, he fell dead in an instant because the glory of God was radiating in the midst of sinners. The glory of God is dangerous, it's spectacular, it's awesome. And the only way that awesome can be used. And yet what John tells us in verse 14 is so incredible. The word dwelt among us and we have seen the glory of God in the Son from the Father. I was thinking about that word in the Greek, it's skeneo, dwelt among us. And I was thinking it's like just tabernacled among us. It's a great parallel to the tabernacle in the wilderness and he will come and tabernacle among us. And, and that's true. The glory of God tabernacled in the person of Jesus Christ. But uh, the, the Greek translation for dwelt among us is actually pitched a tent. Jesus came and pitched a tent in our world. And, uh, and, and I was thinking about it like, is it a temporary thing? But if you look in the New Testament, the same word talks about how the new heavens and the new earth will come and God will dwell among us, same, same verbiage, for an eternity. So it's not in a temporary sense. It's in a vulnerability sense. And just think about this. I have done some camping in the backyard of some of my Granger friends. So I've done some Granger camping. You should try it sometime. I've put up a tent in the backyard of a Granger household. And here's the thing. When you tent in your friend's backyard, they see everything that's going on in your life. Uh, like they see when you're up. They see when you go to bed. They actually have to invite you into their home so that you have a place to sit, so that you have food to eat, so that you have a place to go to the bathroom. Like you're just doing life with people if you're living in a tent in someone's backyard. So what John is saying is God, who created all things, he not only became flesh and became like a man, but he came and pitched a tent in the backyard of sinful humanity so that you could see him and observe him, and watch him, and invite him in, and commune with him, and eat with him, and have life with him. He dwelt among us, and we have seen the glory of God in this. So the sinful mankind is benefiting now from Jesus tenting among us, but when God became a man, a human body became the new and greater tabernacle, because it now contained the blazing, illuminating, life-giving glory of Yahweh. And it parallels so well with Exodus because Moses said in the wilderness, show me your glory. And what does John write? We have seen his glory. <laughs> Man worked to build a tabernacle where God's glory could rest. And at the proper time, God became flesh. And all of God's glory showed up in the person of Jesus Christ on the earth so that we could see it. Moses cast off his sandals on holy ground and Jesus comes to our world and he invites us to cast off this world, to cast off everything you can get your hands on and follow Christ. And we've seen his glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. It goes on in verse 15, John bore witness about him. And cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he is before me. So John goes back to John the Baptist who 
is doing exactly what he did at the beginning of this passage. He is bearing witness about the light. Remember last week we saw a picture of what Christian ministry looks like. You bear witness about the light of Christ. But John says, he who comes after me ranks before me. See, rank and age was a big deal in this day and age. So if you were the older, you were superior. If you came before someone, your ministry was greater, your word was greater, your leadership was greater. So as people are looking to follow John the Baptist and they're starting to think, oh, this prophet must be from God. Maybe he has something that I should latch on to. John says, don't follow me because the, the one who's coming after me, the one who's younger than me, he actually ranks before me. How could that be? John the Baptist was older than Jesus. John the Baptist did show up on the scene before Jesus. But what John is referring to is that Jesus, though he was younger than John the Baptist in a human sense, he was older than John the Baptist in a sense that he was God. He was in the beginning. He was not only older than John the Baptist, he was older than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of Israel's heroes, Moses and David and Joshua. Verse 16 says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel should be coming more and more to life. We get to benefit from God who became flesh, from his fullness. Understand that the human Jesus is everything we need to know about God because he is still fully God in human form. Hebrews 1.3 says he's the radiance of the image of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 1 says he's the image of the invisible God. Philippians chapter 2 says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself by taking the form of a servant. So what we experience in the person of Jesus, even more than his godness, is the outshining of God's character that can only be defined in unconditional love and unmerited favor. Moses gave us the law on Mount Sinai, but Jesus Christ came and he was born under the law to redeem those who are under the law, as it says in Galatians. Now, the law of God, the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, no doubt a grace. What John's saying is not like, ah, forget Moses. He gave you the law. Now we have Jesus. It all works together. (laughs) The the Ten Commandments were, were a grace from God rather than God wiping us all out for our sinfulness, he gave us some common grace and some obvious things so that we could worship God vertically and love one another horizontally. The, the law was a grace in that it reveals our sinfulness. No one can keep the law. So in God giving us the law, it reveals our need for God unless we stay dead in our rebellion. So the law of Moses was no doubt grace, but in comes the person of Jesus And in him we receive grace upon grace. We receive grace stacked upon grace in the person of Jesus because Jesus comes and he can not only keep the law of God because it's written on his heart and because he's God and he's perfect, but he also came to die for all of us who could never keep God's law. And because of the law showing our sinfulness, it shows us that the wages of sin is death, but Jesus came as grace upon grace because he was willing to take your death for you so that you could get all of his righteousness, all of his goodness, and all of his glory. 
The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Let's take truth first. Jesus is truth. Everyone in this life right now is searching for truth. You need truth. It's not your truth. It's God's truth that you need. And there's a very specific truth, and it's all summed up in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the more complete law, able to keep all of God's statutes, both outwardly and inwardly, from a pure and undefiled heart. I thought about Psalm chapter 1 this week. The blessed man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. That is Jesus to a T. Perfectly, his, his roots ran deep and he bore much fruit and our lives should reflect Jesus's life. Jesus showed us how to live and in truth, he tells us how not to live. He actually magnified the law of God, made it more difficult for us sinners because he tells us not to even look at a woman with lust, not to hate your brother or it's as if you've murdered him, to mourn. With those who mourn, he tells us to die to ourselves in the desires of this world. He tells us to drop the rocks of offense when somebody has sinned against us. And while we could never perfectly keep and live all of the truth-filled statements Jesus asked of us, he did. And in his total innocence and in his total perfection and in his eternal godness, he died on a cross in my place as a substitute for my sins. And that is the power of the gospel that's on display this morning. That's where his grace comes in. Jesus is not only truth, but he is grace. Jesus is the unmerited favor of God on all who believe. It takes us back to the peak of the prologue of John where it says, all who receive him, you receive grace, you receive this gift. He gives you the right to become a child of God. Julia Johnston was a woman in 1910. She wasn't able to get up in front of her church and read scripture. She wasn't able to testify. She certainly wasn't able to write a commentary. But she was so moved by Romans chapter 5 and this whole idea of grace and the law that she decided to, to put her pen to paper and she wrote these words and then she put these words to a melody and it gave us the hymn, Grace Greater Than Our Sin. I just want you to hear the stanzas that she wrote in 1910 so that we could still be singing and overwhelmed by the grace that is Jesus Christ. She writes this, Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt, yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look! There is flowing a crimson tide brighter than snow you may be today. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? Have you received the grace of Jesus in the person of Jesus Christ? Have you been confronted with the truth that you are a sinner desperately in need of the grace of God? You can cry out to him today. Cry out to him right there. Julia was writing from Romans chapter 5, 20 through 21 that says this. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, 
It's where you don't want to be. Grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The only way to have eternal life in God is through the person of Jesus Christ. Behold the grace and truth of Jesus. And the third point, the place I want to end today is this. Behold the glory of Christ. Behold the glory of Christ. John's prologue comes to an end in verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. No one has ever seen God. God is invisible. And yet, the only God who is at the Father's side, so this word that became flesh and dwelt among us, he's beside the Father because he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven. He's at the right hand of God, coming again to judge the living and the dead. This person, Jesus, who became flesh for us, he has revealed everything that we need to know about God. You need to know more about God? Look to the person of Jesus Christ. You, know, you want to know what God is like? Look to the person of Jesus Christ. When Jesus hung out with kids, God was hanging out with kids. When Jesus suffered on this earth, God was suffering on this earth. When Jesus died on a cross, God died on a cross. Jesus has made the invisible God known to us. And the aim of the Christian life as we wait for eternity should be to behold the glory of of Christ. John is merely wetting our appetites with these first 18 verses. And he's about to go into 21 chapters of glorious truth so that we can behold the glory of Christ. And I just got to tell you, I've been praying for our church this week. This is what I want. I want us to be so wrecked and transformed by the glory of Christ Jesus that we can't get enough, that it just lights a fire in our hearts to love God and to be missional and to love others. I pray that your prayer is like Paul's. I pray that you as a believer would comprehend so much more than you already have about God became flesh. I pray that your prayer is like Ephesians chapter 1. Paul prays this, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Lord, would you do it here? Would you do it in me? Would you do it in us? Because the more you behold the glory of Christ, the more desire you should have to actually worship him in spirit and truth. The more you behold the glory of Christ, the more quickly you should shut off the TV and drop to your knees at your bedside and really pray, like really pray, really seek his face. The more you behold the glory of Christ, the more quick you should be to repent of even the smallest of sins, let alone the deep, dark things that we often hide in our hearts. These things will come flooding forth when you finally do stand before the glory of God. And, and at that point, it could be too late for those of us who harbor our sin. I, I read Thomas Watson this week who said, Bible knowledge without repentance will be but a torch that leads your soul to hell. That's, that's hard-hitting truth. But the, it doesn't matter what you know. It has to transform your life. It has to get to your heart and move you to belief that moves you to action so that you do repent. And so that you do fall to your face. And so that you do acknowledge Jesus as God and you follow him 
at all costs. The more you behold the glory of Christ, the less you will want of this fading and fleeting world and the more you will want of heaven. I was reading a book by John Owen this week, The Glory of Christ. We have like maybe, we've, I told the first service to go buy all of them. I think they bought 12 of them. There's like maybe eight left. Go buy it. Get the glory of Christ by John Owen. It'll, it'll, he wrote it in, in 1684 on his deathbed. Incredible book. Listen to this paragraph from John Owen. It is our duty and our privilege to behold the glory of Christ. But today, many who call themselves Christians are strangers to this duty. Our Lord Jesus Christ told the Pharisees that in spite of all their boasting, they did not know God. They had no real acquaintance with him, no spiritual view of his glory. And it is the same with us. In spite of so many claiming to know Christ, yet few behold his glory and few are transformed into his image and likeness. Some talk much of imitating Christ and following his example, but no man will ever become like him by trying to imitate his behavior and life if they know nothing of the transforming power of beholding his glory. If we regularly beheld the glory of Christ, get this, our Christian walk with God would become more sweet and pleasant. Our spiritual light and strength would grow daily stronger and our lives would more gloriously represent the glory of Christ and death would be most welcome to us. Are you unsatisfied with your life as a Christian? Then you need to behold the glory of Christ. You need to contemplate and meditate on and ponder and sing of and pray for and read about and believe in the glory of Christ that has been revealed in the person of Jesus. And only a, only a believer would desire this. Only a believer would want more of this. No unregenerate person would thank God for his blazing hot glory. But we who are saved, how could we get enough? We who are saved, how could we not behold him more? 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. The word became flesh is an invitation to us today to believe in the name of Jesus, to believe that he is Lord over all creation, to behold the glory of Jesus, to experience his grace and truth, to allow him to tabernacle in our hearts just as the glory of God tabernacled in the person of Jesus Christ who lived and loved and died and rose again for the forgiveness of sins and promises to come again. On that day when he does come, you better believe that the mountains will quake in his presence Evil will be wiped away and all who have beheld the glory of Christ will no longer have to endure the light and momentary affliction of this world. And so many of you are going through struggles. So many of you do have questions. And so many of you are unsatisfied with what's happening in your life. And you're like, how do I get more? How do I behold more? It doesn't feel light and momentary. It's only light and momentary in comparison to the glory of Christ that is to come. In order for the problems of this broken world to feel light and momentary, you have to behold the glory of Christ. You have to get hungry for the glory of Christ. You have to desire the glory of Christ and seek him with all of your heart. I want to end with a time, uh, just a moment of worship. And I, I've, I've, I'm so burdened to help like, I hope this is helpful. It's been helpful to me. And 
if I could give you four quick things for how to behold the glory of Christ, number one, you just have to fix it in your mind that this is the best truth. That his incarnation, that the word became flesh, it is the greatest truth. Better than anything you can get your hands on, better than finding a spouse, uh, better than the, the, the raise or the promotion. The glory of Christ is the greatest thing that you can fathom on this planet. Then you need to seek him at his word. You need to look from Genesis to Revelation for every instance that reveals the glory of God in the person of Jesus. Every instance where the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. That's going to take some work. That's going to take some time. That's why we have classes. That's why we have Bible studies. And then you need to meditate on what you find in Scripture. Think about it. When you wake up in the morning, when you lay down at night, you need to meditate on every revelation of Jesus that you have found in Scripture. And then you need to pray. Number four, you pray to behold the glory of Christ. You pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to his majesty and to his goodness so that you can trust him. And the Puritans would say, pray until you pray. Sometimes you get on your knees and you like run out of words really quick. Pray until you pray. Just keep praying. Just keep seeking the Lord. He will give you the word so that you can seek him with all of your heart. And, and I told you, I, hopefully you see that I am passionate about it because the Lord's been meeting me in the secret place this week as I've gotten to study this glorious truth. And there was a moment where I did need to pray to the Lord and just let it saturate my heart. And as I was praying, my phone just randomly like switched over from the channel it was on and it started playing these old hymns and, and old spirit songs on the piano. And as I kept, I just let it play and I kept praying. And as I ran out of words in my own quiet time and in this own moment of devotion, uh, I, I noticed, I picked out the song that the piano was, was playing, the melody. And it was an old song that I sang growing up, As the Deer, which is from uh, one of David's prayers and psalm. And quickly, the, the words to that song as the melody was playing became the words to my prayer. It became the, the words of my heart that, that uh, I would long for Jesus. I would only want to worship Jesus, that as a deer pants for flowing streams, I would pant and desire more of Christ. And I want that to be true for us. And so why don't we stand our feet? Let's just sing these words in a responsive moment to our God who is faithful and good, that we might behold his glory in the person of Jesus. Come on, you sing it. And as the deer panted for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. Lift your voice in this place. And you alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship thee you alone come on and you alone are my strength my shield to you alone may my spirit yield and you alone are my heart's desire and I long to worship Let's sing this. You're my friend and you are my brother. Just fathom that for a moment. You sing it. And you're my friend and you are 
my brother, even though you are a king. And I love you more than any other, so much more than anything. And you alone are my strength, my shield. and I long to worship you alone are my heart's desire one more and you alone are my heart's desire and I long to worship